This is Future Tense Fiction, a podcast featuring stories about how technology could change tomorrow. I'm Maddie Stone. What if technology could reveal everything about your future? Even if you could change nothing, would you still want to know? Knowing how my life plays out means I don't have anxiety. I don't fear. So many things that weigh on people and tear them up are a fear of what's going to happen. I don't have that. I never have that. On today's episode, we are bringing you a reading of David Iserson's This But Again. Afterward, David tells us why he thinks life in a vast computer simulation might feel surprisingly familiar. That's coming up on Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. I'm a freelance journalist and the editor of The Science of Fiction, a newsletter about how science and pop culture intersect. Every month, Slate's Future Tense partnership with New America and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination publishes a short story that explores how science and technology will shape our future. Now, we are bringing some of those stories to you in a podcast that includes a conversation with the author or an expert in a related field. Today's story is This But Again by David Iserson. David is a film and television writer-producer in Los Angeles and the author of the novel Firecracker. David's story follows Marcus, who is forced to relive his life on loop in a never-ending computer simulation, muddling once again through graduations and funerals, but mostly just re-enduring the in-between hours, repetitive and predictable. He can change very little. Perhaps he could add an um here or there, or misdial a phone number. But on the whole, Marcus is stuck. That is, until one fateful afternoon, when he finds himself on a street corner with Sarah and makes a decision that changes everything, and helps her to do the same. After the story, David and I will talk fate, love, and free will in a world coded for conformity. And now, he reads his story, This But Again. Marcus died in 2076 at the age of 87, having lived neither a particularly eventful nor uneventful life. He was married to Margot, had two kids, Adeline and Cole, and two grandkids, Lana and James. He died of natural causes with what felt like the normal amount of regrets. Once his life ended, he was relieved to discover that death wasn't nothing, which is what he initially feared most. There also wasn't a heaven or a hell. He was never particularly religious and already figured there wouldn't be a heaven or a hell, given the simulation. But he couldn't help but wonder what came next. If there had been a heaven and a hell, where would he have been sent? He had been neither notably bad nor notably good. What did he deserve? Marcus's dying and posthumous thoughts were abruptly interrupted when he found himself, of all places, inside his mother's uterus. When he later reflected on that moment, the realization of where he was, the very idea of being inside his mother was kind of gross. Then he scolded himself for thinking that. Who else's uterus should he have expected? That the uterus belonged to his mother and not some other random uterus owner became clear when Marcus was pulled out. He was born via cesarean section, which, because he was aware and didn't have a baby's unknowing brain, was the preferable way to come out. When he felt the cold, static air of the delivery room, he assumed that this was reincarnation. A new life, new choices. But who would he be? When he found himself nuzzled in a woman's soft arms and breasts and heard her voice, Marcus, Marcus, Marcus. He knew this was his mother, and he was, once again, himself. Marcus's life had started over again. 
It began exactly as it had before, with only one exception. This time, Marcus was aware. His brain hadn't been wiped when his life reset. He had his full consciousness and memories, and with his mind intact, he was re-experiencing his life from the beginning. Everything he had done in his life, he would do again. Hard as he might try at first, he couldn't change anything. Much like you can't change a movie or a TV show you've watched before. Even the parts he didn't like the first time around. Marcus couldn't move his limbs or say something different. He tried. It didn't seem like he could right wrongs or correct mistakes or take any road not taken. He could only passively experience his life a second time without free will. Sometimes it was lovely. Sometimes it was tedious. Re-experiencing childhood in particular could be very boring. But he did find a lot of joy in witnessing his past and being with his family anew and doing so with the perspective of the life he had already lived. Marcus had a lot of time to think. Years and years and years to think. Enough time, indeed, to develop a working theory for how he ended up in this predicament. He knew already, of course, that in 2053, when Marcus was in his 60s, a team from MIT and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology had proved, or would prove, depending on how you wanted to look at it, that we were all living in a computer simulation and that we, human beings, are made up of complex lines of code. This revelation obviously caused a lot of chaos, setting off a rash of suicides and waves of anarchy. But after a while, after the best thinkers in the world wrote some very smart essays and news pundits made interesting arguments about how living in a computer simulation isn't much different ultimately and how we always assumed or even hoped the world worked, Things calmed down. Many people became more religious. There was presumably someone or something pulling the switches. Shouldn't we pray to them? Knowing about the simulation didn't change Marcus's life that much. Along with everyone else, he still went to work each day, and he still paid his credit card bill. Soon, sitcoms started making jokes about the simulation. Even in a simulation, I can't get a date. And Marcus realized that living in a simulation is just another one of those things that people get used to. But no one had said anything about the simulation repeating itself, that people could relive their lives like passengers on a train, deprived of any say over where the train was heading. Marcus understood that because we, all people, turned out to be complex computer codes, there must have been a mistake in a line of the specific computer code that made up his brain. What was supposed to have been erased upon his death simply wasn't. As far as he knew, he was alone in re-experiencing this do-over, and alone in knowing that such a thing was even possible. By the time Marcus had relived about 16 years of his life, he realized he could change things ever so slightly. And only if he really, really concentrated, and I mean really concentrated, he can add an um to a sentence or press the wrong button on the phone. His ability was seemingly useless because as soon as he changed any little thing, his body would take back over correcting whatever mistake he had made. He would re-enter the phone number correctly. Other than an added um or two, Marcus continued to simply experience his life. There are really only four or five major memorable things that happen to a person every year, so although all days were vaguely familiar, most still held some surprises for Marcus that were worth appreciating with fresh eyes. There were also a few terrible things that happened in Marcus's life that he dreaded re-experiencing. Mostly deaths, his grandparents, his father, his dog. But even those lost a bit of their sting the second time around since he had been able to really appreciate those he missed when he'd spent time with them again. What Marcus most dreaded reliving was the worst thing he'd ever seen, something that loomed over the first 20 years of his life. When he was in college, Marcus was waiting at a crosswalk behind Sarah, a girl he barely knew but found utterly captivating. She had large, curious eyes and her clothes and hands were always stained with speckles of paint. He didn't know if she'd done it on purpose or by accident, but that day, Sarah crossed the street against the light and was hit by a car. She died instantly, right before his eyes. Even before experiencing it a second time, Marcus was shaken by that image, that girl, that moment, and knew he would be every day for the rest of his life. As his life's repeat took him back to college, where he started seeing Sarah occasionally again at the dining halls or parties, 
his dread of re-witnessing her death only mounted. When the day finally came, as Sarah stood in front of him at the crosswalk, the orange of the sunset making everything around him look unreal, Marcus concentrated every part of himself on doing something, anything. All he was able to muster was an almost whisper. Don't. And it worked. That one word stopped Sarah just long enough. She didn't walk into the street. She wasn't killed by a car. Marcus and Sarah shared a confused and breathless look at the intersection. And then the next moment she was gone. She walked away. Marcus didn't follow her. He couldn't follow her. He still couldn't control where he was heading next. But for the first time since he was reborn, he lived in a different world. In his last lifetime, he lived in a world where Sarah died at age 20. Now he lived in a world where Sarah was alive. He didn't see Sarah again for four years. And then one day, he found himself sharing an elevator with her in Chicago, where he moved after college. He was both shocked to see her and out of practice at having a new conversation with someone. It had been a lifetime since he had last needed to. He fumbled through some awkward pleasantries and a bad joke. Oh, I've heard about what happens on the 14th floor. Sarah politely replied, I'll keep an eye out for any suspicious behavior. The doors opened and she was gone again. Marcus realized that only when he crossed paths with Sarah was he capable of a new experience. She was the sole person unleashed and free in a story otherwise already told. It was two more years before he ran into Sarah again. This time they were in line at a Starbucks by his office and Sarah was on her lunch break. She had become a marketing executive. She had wanted to be a painter. But I don't know, she said. It didn't happen. Sarah had 15 minutes left on her break and Marcus didn't know if he'd ever have another opportunity to talk to her about what he was experiencing. But how to do so without coming across as a lunatic? Can I please, please buy you a coffee and tell you something important? I'll be just 15 minutes. He'll be back at work in time. She ended up sitting with him for much longer, leaning across the table and listening intently as he told her about the simulation and her death and everything else. He thought it would be impossible to convince her, but improbably, she believed him. For her, too, there had been something about that day at the intersection. Something that felt important. Something that felt different. She remembered him whispering, Don't. So you know everything that's going to happen and always have? With my life, yes. Everything? Everything I can remember. And you saved my life. Sarah asked. Marcus nodded. So why didn't you stop 9-11? Well, I can't just stop anything. You stopped me from getting killed. I'm sure you could have stopped 9-11. It's different. I didn't know I could save you in any way. It would have been too hard to stop something like that. Too hard? She laughed. There was something about it being too hard to stop 9-11 that she thought was funny. Then she immediately apologized for laughing. It was so strange for him to hear new laughter. It was a beautiful feeling, one he needed to experience again. He needed to see her again. He loved experiencing life in a new way, sure, but he also wanted to see her. Her hair was up in a messy bun, and her heavy jacket covered her body from the neck down. But her eyes were big and curious, and to Marcus, she was impossibly beautiful. You know what this reminds me of? Your life? You know what it's like? She asked over her second cappuccino. There's a story about Alfred Hitchcock in a restaurant. Do you like Hitchcock movies? I haven't seen any Hitchcock. Not even Psycho? I know the shower scene. Oh, wow. Maybe that's why you were sent back. You have to see some Hitchcock movies. Sarah laughed more laughter that had never before existed. I probably can't. Right, right. No new experiences. Sarah suddenly felt bad. Well, this story doesn't even involve any movies. It's about how Hitchcock went to a restaurant and ordered a huge meal. Like, a huge meal. Steak and turkey and soup and lamb chops. And at the end, the waiter came over and asked if he could get him anything else. 
Hitchcock, still hungry, waved his hand at all the empty plates and said, Can I get this, but again? Sarah laughed again, and so did Marcus. Then she said, But you can see movies you haven't seen before if you see them with me, right? I suppose I could. Good. We can do that. They made plans to meet at that Starbucks again. It was by Marcus's office, and he knew he would regularly go there. He just didn't know when the next time would be. He had no control over that. Sometimes he wouldn't see her for weeks, and sometimes he would find her there lingering hopefully over a cappuccino, or even waiting for him outside his office. When they saw each other, they could override his life's autopilot. They went to movies and dinners and walked along the lake in the cold. All brand new experiences. Marcus and Sarah fell in love. But at work, Marcus was also simultaneously meeting Margot, the woman he would eventually marry. Margot had a short haircut and made her own jewelry in her spare time and fell in love with Marcus instantly, as if it were all foreordained. These two paths of life were happening in parallel. Marcus was carrying on a deep relationship with Sarah that had metaphysical limitations, while also starting a life with the mother of his children. Sarah sometimes wondered if Marcus loved her because he had to, because there were no other people in the world he could love in a new way. It was her because it could only be her. Marcus tried to claim otherwise. I genuinely love you with my entire soul, and if you weren't the only person in the world I could love in a new way, I still would love you, I promise. Maybe, maybe the entire reason the computer code in my brain got broken was so I could be with you, Sarah. The double lives of Marcus and Margot and Marcus and Sarah worked for a while, but it was complicated. If Marcus and Sarah, say, went to the movies when the man who knew too much was screening at the University of Chicago and Sarah left to go to the bathroom, Marcus's body would attempt to correct his lapse into free will and return him to his former reality. Completely out of his control, he would get up and try to hop on a bus to go rejoin his previously scheduled life. This made Sarah restless. She wanted more out of her relationship than only being a glitch in Marcus's program existing on the margins of his actual full life. She believed that there must be a reason that she was alive here and now beyond just being someone's second shift girlfriend. We're going to take a short break here. When we come back, more of this but again. Stay with us on Future Tense Fiction. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. Now back to David Iserson's story, This But Again. Sarah became more and more consumed by how there was this whole other plane of existence, Marcus's former life, where she was not meant to be, where she didn't have a job or an apartment or Marcus, where she was dead at age 20. The more she saw the pull Marcus's previous life had on him, the more aware she became of how her current existence pulled no one. She was an accident. Her life had no gravity. Could she even make an impact on the world? How? She became obsessed with the parallel universe tragedy that killed her, when she was hit by a car and her story ended. What would she have done with her first 20 years if she knew it was ending? What could she do now, in this reality, with the rest of her life? now that it had been handed to her like stolen goods. It all seemed so unfair that Marcus got to know how his life would end up and she could not. Is your life, your thing, your situation, a blessing or a curse? She asked him one day. Marcus had considered it both at different times, but at that moment, because he loved being with Sarah, he said, blessing for sure, I get to be with you. Sarah smiled, but that answer wasn't enough for her. Even if I wasn't around, is it better this way? Yes, I think. Knowing how my life plays out means I don't have anxiety. 
I don't fear. So many things that weigh on people and tear them up are a fear of what's going to happen. I don't have that. I never have that. Sarah decided that if she could bring what Marcus was experiencing, this fearlessness, to others, it would be a reason for her to be alive, a gift she could give to the world, a justification for her reprieve. She took Marcus to her brother, who managed programmers at a video game design company. Though not well-versed in computer programming or the intricacies of the simulation, Marcus, thanks to wisdom from his past life, was able to explain how to access the computer codes that serve as everyone's operating systems. When the simulation was proved in 2053, scientists discovered a microscopic hidden port on the left side of every human's right pinky toe. So small, no one would find it if they didn't know where to look. That gave access to everyone's code. The programmers at the video game company followed Marcus's instructions and, incredibly, found the port and were able to unlock the code. The programmers couldn't do much with the data they found in Marcus's toe port. But by comparing Marcus's code with the codes of the other programmers, they were able to find the glitch that gave Marcus the ability to remember the life he'd already lived. The world they all lived was now no longer the world where the simulation was revealed by a team from MIT and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology 40 years into the future. It was a world where Sarah preempted them by breaking the news in 2016 and simultaneously announced the discovery of the glitch in Marcus's code implant. Sarah offered everyone the opportunity of having Marcusian foresight added to their own computer codes. She charged for the service on a sliding scale. Purchasing the service was a bit complicated because people had already lived their lives and lacked free will apart from their interactions with Sarah. People could only agree to the procedure if Sarah asked them directly. She would then have to lead the person to the computer programmers who would then implant the code through people's toe ports. If either customer or programmer was left without Sarah for a moment, they would wander back to their lives as they had lived them before. This made scaling, and her dream of reaching millions instead of thousands, quite difficult. The only way Sarah could know if the procedure was successful was by asking directly. Outside of a subject's experience with Sarah, their lives would seemingly continue as if nothing had happened. The only difference would be, as in Marcus's case, inside their heads. Customers seeking reassurance would usually ask Sarah if she had done the procedure to herself. And she would tell the truth, yes, but not the whole truth. Yes, but it didn't work for me. Because Sarah was supposed to have died in that intersection in 2009, there was no previously lived adult life of which to gain awareness. She was, as far as she could tell, the only person in the world who was making up life as she went along. Marcus asked Sarah several times whether she remembered if, before he stopped her, she was stepping into traffic on purpose or by accident. Accident, of course, she would always say. I don't know what happened. My mind was somewhere else. But that wasn't entirely true. Sarah hadn't been depressed, at least no more depressed than anyone else in college, and she wasn't suicidal. But she distinctly remembered, before Marcus whispered, don't, that she wanted to get hit by a car. She didn't know why, but she absolutely wanted to. The memory always made her shudder. Sarah and Marcus still saw each other, but Sarah would be absent more and more, gone spreading the gift of foresight around the world. Oprah was one of her most famous clients, embracing the empowering idea of life without a fear of the future. Eventually, Sarah realized that she could deploy employees globally to perform the implanting as long as she was present on a live video feed. With this, the procedures were given to hundreds of thousands of subjects in most countries, making Sarah a billionaire. The view from her apartment was breathtaking. She bought it from Oprah. One of the last times Marcus and Sarah saw each other, Margot, Marcus's wife, was at the same restaurant as they were, dining with a work friend. She certainly had to have seen them. They were clearly on a romantic date, and the restaurant wasn't very big. But Sarah knew that Margot couldn't change her actions, couldn't change her path. 
She behaved as she always behaved in that moment at that restaurant in the first reality, the one where Sarah was dead. Margot did not have the free will to slam her fist on their table and scream, what are you doing with my husband? Unless Sarah specifically confronted her first. As Sarah left the restaurant, she could see that Margot was pregnant, which made her feel terrible. After that, when Marcus saw Sarah, it was usually only on TV, discussing her innovative work studying the simulation. She would go to the new studio on her own and talk her way on screen. Otherwise, no one would have the free will to report stories about her, let alone send a car to pick her up. The last time Marcus saw Sarah in person was the day before his daughter was born. He promised Sarah that she mattered more to him than anything from his old life, but Sarah couldn't and didn't want to believe him. He was going to be a father now, and he had the gift to re-experience his daughter and son growing up with the knowledge of the adults they would become. He was lucky. She would never have that. She would never have children. It wouldn't make sense for her to be a mother. Nobody's already led life involved having children with her. Marcus and Sarah both cried when they parted ways. Marcus did love Sarah, not because she was the only person he could experience life with, but because she was the boldest, most beautiful part of his life. Sarah did really love Marcus, but she knew she wasn't supposed to be a person in his life. She wasn't supposed to be a person in anyone's life. Whenever Sarah was tempted to feel sorry for herself, she found consolation in telling herself she had used her unique free will to improve humanity's lot. Not everyone felt the same way. The first time it happened, she was out to dinner alone at a fancy sushi place. A woman in her 60s was washing her hands in the bathroom. It's you. She stammered out, and Sarah then recognized one of her very first clients. The woman took a moment to get used to having a new conversation, and then she started to cry. I'm going to die of breast cancer in two years, and I never said I'm sorry to my daughter, and I can't, no matter how much I want to. I was a bad mother, and I'm going to die a bad mother, and I can't do anything about it. Tears fell and her mascara blurred under her eyes. Sarah cried too. I'm here though, now. You can change things when I'm here, Sarah said. She took out her phone. Call your daughter now. The call went to voicemail, but the woman was able to apologize for something unspoken that had kept them apart for almost 10 years. Sarah ran from the restaurant and took a sleeping pill, and it didn't work. She just shook in bed all night. Then it kept happening wherever Sarah would go. I wanted to know what would happen because I thought everything was going to turn out well. But when I die, I die sad, a man told her. Other people told her similar things. Everyone wanted her to know what they knew. Everyone wanted to tell her the things that they could only tell her. There are no surprises anymore, Oprah said. Surprises were so wonderful. I miss surprises. Sarah stopped taking new clients, and soon she stopped leaving home. It wasn't enough. She still had to venture out from time to time, if only to see the doctor to get more sleeping pills. Sarah eventually moved away to a small, pretty town in Denmark where she'd be unlikely to bump into any knowings, as she called her clients. She bought a modest wooden house there where she would eventually die in her 90s. Sarah saw Marcus one more time on her last visit back to Chicago but she didn't think he saw her. They were both older, and time had changed the shape of their faces. But he was unmistakably Marcus, and had he seen her, she would have been unmistakably Sarah. It was Christmas, and Marcus's granddaughter Lana was a baby. Marcus had told Sarah that Lana was his favorite, and when he died in 2076, Lana was in the middle of finals at college and he told her that under no circumstances was she going to miss finals just to watch an old man die. But as Marcus closed his eyes for what he thought was the last time, he regretted telling her that. He wished he could see Lana again. As Sarah stood across from Marcus's house at Christmas and watched his family through the window and watched him hold Lana again, she was happy for him. 
Happy he had gotten to see Lana many more times. Happy he got his wish. Sarah was reborn four months after Marcus in 1989, and this time around she shared his affliction. She remembered the life she had lived before, and she was a passenger in her own mind as she lived that life once again. As Marcus had warned her, early childhood was a bore, but it also came with a lot of unexpected moments. Adults tell the truth to babies in the way they don't when children can understand. I'm so scared I'm going to fail, Sarah's father told her one night as he rocked her to sleep. But he didn't. Not much. She experienced it all again. The terrible first kiss. The unending embarrassment of puberty. Bacon, her Australian shepherd who loved nothing in the world more than her. There was a lot of discovery mixed in with the things she did remember. She decided that she would pay attention in high school French this time around and actually learn something. C'est merveilleux. She went to college without dread, fear, or anxiety. She had made her decision a long time ago and never wavered. It was October. It had just rained. The sun had begun to set, giving everything an improbably orange tint. The crosswalk signal changed to red as she got to the intersection. This time when she stepped forward and heard the desperate whispered, Don't. It did not stop her. That was This But Again, written and read by David Iserson. Coming up, David and I discuss what it would really be like to repeat our lives on loop. That's just ahead on Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction. You just heard David Iserson's short story, This But Again. The idea that we could be living in a computer simulation was widely popularized by the 1999 movie The Matrix, and it's been the starting point for countless sci-fi stories since. The Matrix was my first introduction to the notion that our reality might be nothing more than some complex lines of code. And it turns out it was David's as well. I asked him about how his story rethinks some of our familiar narratives about computer simulations. I probably first came into contact with the idea also during The Matrix, and the story itself kind of came backwards to it. I think I probably thought more about the ideas that I wanted to tell in the story and worked backwards to try to like find a convention that fell over it. I think there has been some sort of, yeah, just just a kind of a cultural trend in the last few years to attribute the complicated world we're living in as like we are living in some sort of simulation because the details of it sometimes feel absurd or badly written. That was just sort of lingering in my head as I was putting the story together. You know, the Matrix dystopian idea of a simulation is naturally negative. And I was also trying to think about it, not necessarily as positive, but as neutral. I was trying to think about what the outcome would be. And I was thinking of it in terms of writing. I always sort of think about writing as, you know, as moving characters around a chessboard. The last few years has taught me that people adjust to the new normal pretty quickly. So when I was thinking about if a scientist came and said, hey, we've proven it, we're living in a simulation, that instead of it leading to mass chaos and people running through the streets, which probably would happen for a minute, but I think eventually people would frame that in terms of how they understand the world. And I talked a little bit about religion in the story because I actually think that there's something that that would mirror religion. I mean, I think people who believe that there is a force greater than them in the world don't necessarily understand how such a thing would be devised and how such a thing would be placed into practice. 
And if you can frame that as like a simulation is the method in which a god or some sort of force can control lives or set us on a path, then that is just sort of framing something in a way that people can understand it. So in the story, I talk about how people ultimately became more religious when they found out there was a simulation because it is an idea that, yeah, if if there is somebody or something programming us, shouldn't we thank them? Shouldn't we pray to them? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and compelling idea. And I think it has some historic parallels as well. As well. I'm thinking back to when physicists first proposed the Big Bang Theory, that idea was actually relatively quickly embraced by the Catholic Church and sort of woven into a religious understanding of how the universe came to be. And I, I do think it's it's not outside the realm of possibility to imagine something similar happening um, if we were to discover that there were indeed some creator who, from our perspective, as as little you know Sims running around in this world, is an all powerful deity who can change everything, and we can't interact with in any way. I, I, to me, that seems like a very logical basis for deepening one's faith. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, did. Do the Sims pray to the 15-year-old playing Sims? I mean, I guess they should, right? (laughs) (laughs) So your story offers a couple of interesting twists on the idea that the world might be a computer simulation. One of the most striking ones to me is the fact that the simulation is cyclical. So people repeat their same lives over and over with really very limited ability to change things and no memory of their earlier loops through the simulation, at least most of the time. What drew you to the idea of a simulation that essentially plays out the same way on repeat? And why do you think someone might want to create such a world? There are just a few sort of hypothetical scenarios that I, like little mind exercises that have just boggled me or just fascinated me since I I remember being very young. And one of it is starting your life over again. And um, I mean, the the first version of that is with all the information you have, what would you do and how would you do things differently? I was just thinking about a twist on that and thinking about the blessing and the curse to just re-experiencing it and re-seeing it. Then when I was trying to place that in terms of like a science fiction framing or place that over this this computer simulation idea. I thought about video games and I, I, I thought about that being a version of how a simulation would work. You know, in a video game, it's set up so people can, you know, so the characters take take slightly different paths and move around, you know, before you put, you know, the quarters into the machine, you would just see them sort of playing over and over again, just just scenes of the same of Mario or the car and pole position just going through the same route over and over and over again. And it, it, it seemed just like that is essentially what happens to a computer-generated person or character with no other sort of intervention. And it was a question about if our minds are the only things that could change in this scenario, like our thoughts are the only things that can change in that scenario, if free will is only sort of a construct that we place on top of our experiences to give them meaning. But what if all of these things are happening despite you? And so while that's the backdrop for this world, the turning point in your story comes when this character Marcus is able to translate his thoughts, his conscious awareness of what's coming into his life into action by blurting out a single word that stops this woman, Sarah, from walking into the street and getting hit and killed by a car. And as I was thinking about Marcus's actions here, I was struck by the idea that we don't really know whether he saved Sarah through sheer willpower or overcoming the limitations of his programming, or if one of the programmers behind the simulation decided to mix things up and inject some new code that compelled Marcus to save Sarah. I'm curious, David, whether you intended for this sort of pivotal moment in the story to be gesturing toward the idea of free will? Or was it intended to be a little bit more ambiguous? I think it was intended to be ambiguous, but I was exploring 
the notion of fate and how love fixes into that. I think that love stories are the kind of stories that humans spend the most of their time thinking in terms of like things like destiny and fate. And was I here on this day for a reason? Did our two paths cross for a reason? And so by placing that as being the one thing that he can change in the world, somebody else and somebody that he grows to love and somebody who grows to love him, even though the relationship is complicated. It felt like that would be, it would be the situation that that does change. And, you know, before that in the story, he finds that he can make these little changes in the world, but that, that, that have no actual impact on anything that happens, like misdialing a phone number or adding one errant word to a sentence. But to have an effect on one person and one person's life, and then that person then becoming the person that you're most connected to, it sort of feels like when we elevate the stories of our own lives, and we tell the stories of our own lives, like those situations are the ones that become meaningful. I haven't even decided for myself if this was an intention of the computer code or this was, you know, pure pure accident. But I think the characters kind of go through the debate themselves and that is interesting to me. But I actually even writing the story never really gave thought on who the person or figures that live outside the simulation. I, I think the exercise I was I was going through in my mind is the human experience that the people inside the computer experience. And so from that kind of pivotal moment on, Sarah goes on to live this life that she has no memories of that, as far as we know, has never existed within the context of this simulation before, and is in kind of a unique position as a result of that in her ability to interact with other people and introduce new experiences into their lives and change things, albeit in in a somewhat limited and constrained way, she has to initiate interactions with other people in order for them to experience new things. But nevertheless, it's, it's a real departure from how we understand the simulation to work up until that point. And in just thinking about computer programs and simulations more broadly, it occurred to me that Sarah's role feels, and this might sound a little mean to say, but not unlike that of a computer virus. Um, (laughs) She is essentially this rogue bit of code that wasn't supposed to exist. And every interaction she has with other people introduce new events that weren't supposed to happen. I'm curious how you see Sarah's role in the context of this world where everything is coded to play out the same way over and over. I haven't thought about that, whether she or not she is a virus, but I like that. I mean, I think for me, Sarah was a way to talk about being in a stage in one's life when they feel like that. It's a just a, an affliction that so many people I know experience, and I certainly do as well sometimes. You feel like you have a purpose or a some sort of talents to give to the world, but you absolutely are directionless in how to do it. And so for for Sarah, it's like there's a literalization of it. She is actually the one odd piece of this entire universe, yet she doesn't know what to do with her life. She doesn't know how to make an impact in the world. And that is like her struggle. Like, am I just here to be the girlfriend of the guy who saved me? Or can I use my very, very specific virus-like situation to make some change in people's lives? And yeah, that just sort of feels like being in your 20s and your 30s and wondering whether you are enough and looking at your peers and looking at people who have accomplished more and people who have accomplished less and wondering like, what is the thing that is going to be your purpose and your legacy. That is the sort of story I was trying to tell about Sarah that sort of falls outside of the science fiction aspect of it, but it plays off of that. In the context of the story, Sarah ultimately decides that the way she can make the most impact um, is to give other people the same 
thing that Marcus was born with, this ability to remember how their lives played out before. And I feel like the popularity of that, the fact that she becomes this insta billionaire as a result of having this ability and this being something that a lot of people come to her for, technically she goes to them for, but a lot of people are interested in. I think that really speaks to a core element of human nature that we were talking about a moment ago, this this desire to know how our lives are going to be, what's in store for us. And I think in a way that speaks to the enduring popularity of things like astrology and horoscopes, but also the rising popularity of scientific tools like DNA testing in some ways. I think there's technologies that have been popularized by the notion that maybe we can crack the code on our lives and and essentially learn what's coming for us and maybe even our descendants. I'm curious how much you thought about that while writing the story, David, whether there's something essentially human about wanting to know how your life is going to turn out. Given the opportunity to know the future, I think enough people would do it and enough people would regret it. I think there's a kind of person who jumps to the end of a novel first just to kind of know what they're in for. And there's a enough people that have so much anxiety about the future that it cripples them that just having the relief of knowing the ending seems like comfort. And in the story, it's not like half the people in the world take up what Sarah is offering. I mean, I think ultimately it's a fairly small percentage, but it is enough that makes what she's offering a phenomenon enough to to make her very successful. But the way it's sold to people, and I think the way people tell themselves it's worth it, is that so much of our stress, so much of our anxieties are what is going to happen. If you don't have to worry about the plane crashing when you're taking a, a trip, then you can relax. Of course, if you do know that you're, the plane crashes and you can't control it, well, that is just going to be a terrible way to live the next few years, few months, few hours of that. I think the hard truth that some of us succeed and some of us fail and some of us die happy and some of us die sad, I think that is not easy for anyone to take if the answer is not what you want the answer to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why ultimately Sarah lands in that place of feeling like this was not a good thing to offer the world and and isolating herself is because... I mean, it's it's not clear in the story how many of her clients came back to her with bad experiences or intense regret over having asked to learn how everything in their life was going to turn out. But it was enough to clearly profoundly, you know, shake her and shake her confidence in the idea that she was giving something to the world that was a net good for the world. It's tough for her because I think she did also provide good to people. I think there are people who she never heard from who were happy and relieved to know the thing they were struggling so hard to accomplish was eventually accomplished or that their children didn't have messed up adulthoods or whatever are the things that people want to soothe themselves with knowing. I think it's just that when you are offering people the opportunity to know the truth, the truth is not always appealing, and that is outside of her control. One of the more unsettling ideas I was left with after listening to your story is that- I love unsettling ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I also love unsettling ideas. And so this this one I had to chew on a bit. I mean, this idea that if the world is a simulation, it could be much smaller in scope or more limited than we think it is. I think before reading your story, I always kind of imagined that like if scientists were to discover that the world were a simulation, it fundamentally wouldn't change anything about the universe. The universe would still be this vast, complicated thing, it would have just arisen in a way that we didn't predict or didn't expect. But, you know, what if it's actually just an 80-year window that loops over and over? And would there be any point in the creators of that simulation writing the code to 
render the planets and the stars beyond our solar system. If there's no hope of us ever leaving this one, which we probably wouldn't be able to do in 80 years, if we're living in a simulation, should we expect it to be narrower than we think it is based on empirical science? And, and does that even matter? I think it really kind of depends on who is inventing the simulation. If they're inventing the simulation as an exercise to try to ultimately build a universe that keeps expanding and filled with all sorts of organisms and different kinds of beings. But if the creators of a simulation are building something to understand lives and how uh, and and humanity and how people grow and react and and tell stories and think in terms of um, the world that is in their world, which is what I as a writer am more drawn to. I'm, I'm I am less drawn to if I was if I was a uh, you know computer scientist building something. I'm I'm less drawn to you know, the the billions and billions of miles away planets where beings exist as gas and don't think in the way that humans think. I don't know how to tell those stories. So if I was building a simulation, it would be probably more a reflection of just the universe and the world that I understand. And I don't think that that is a hopeless idea. I think that that is a way of understanding that the way two people interact on a street corner has meaning and purpose. Everybody, despite a knowledge that the world is vast, there is still a reason to care about the world and other people around us. So I think there's actually something that is not necessarily unhopeful about a limited smaller universe that exists that we all can live in. David Iserson is the author of This But Again. He's also a screenwriter, TV writer, and producer based in Los Angeles. And that's all for this episode of Future Tense Fiction, a monthly podcast featuring short stories from Future Tense and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination about how technology and science will change our lives. Tiara Darnell is our lead producer, editor, and sound designer. Production and editorial assistance from Mia Armstrong-Lopez, Tori Bosch, and Micah Espinosa. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. This But Again was written and read by David Iserson and edited by Andres Martinez. The other editors on the Future Tense Fiction team are Joey Eshrick, Ed Finn, and Tori Bosch. I'm your host, Maddie Stone. We'll see you in the future.